pray together. Lord, we bow before you as our God. We say with Samuel, speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. We want to give your word the attention and the reverence that it deserves because you have spoken through it. We want to say with David, therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. Lord, we want to embrace your truth as the final word on everything, not what we've always heard or always thought, but that we would bow before our God and say, Lord, if you have said this, then it is true, and that our faith would rest in your word and your promises. Lord, we want to be like the wise man who built his house on a rock that hears and embraces your word so that no matter what storms in this life come, that we will not be shaken completely off that rock. We will hold firm because we have a foundation under us that will hold us up no matter what. So I pray that you would strengthen the faith of your people even as we hear your word this morning. And Lord, your word also has the power to bring about the new birth. You say that we've been born again, not by perishable seed, but the imperishable seed of the word of God. And so I pray that you would do that miracle for anyone who's never received new life from you, that you would cause them to Come to spiritual life. Come to know you in Christ. And that they would be born again to a living hope. So Lord, we can't do any of this in our own strength or wisdom. We acknowledge our dependence on you to do everything. So would you please work mightily among us in this time. In Christ's name, amen. Last Sunday, we started a book that will help us as we try to process the question, what role does God have in our suffering? Some people would say he has no role in the pain and sorrow of this world. And others would say he only has a limited role in the heartbreaking trials and losses of this life. Our text for today helps us clarify God's level of involvement when we experience suffering. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job chapter 1 as we continue our study in this Old Testament book. Job chapter 1. Last week we were given a description of Job's blameless character and his large family, and his vast possessions. We were also shown a scene taking place in heaven that Job knows absolutely nothing about. God brings Job up to Satan, 
the enemy of our souls. And Satan replies to God that Job only fears and serves you because of all the blessings you give him. But if you take away all those blessings, Job will turn away from you and curse you to your face. God grants permission for Satan to carry out a painful test that will demonstrate what Job values most in his heart. So after God sets limits to what Satan is allowed to do to Job, Satan departs. And that brings us to the tragic day when Job will experience shattering losses. So picking up the story in verse 13 of chapter 1. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So Sabaeans have come from Arabia. They make a raid on Job's land. They steal all of his oxen and all of his donkeys, kill the servants who were taking care of them. And only one servant escapes alive to tell Job the bad news of what just happened. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came up and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So there's this strange lightning storm that completely burns up 7,000 sheep at one time and kills all the shepherds except one of them. And he survives and tells Job what just took place. And while he's still speaking, verse 17, also another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So the Chaldeans are also known as the Babylonians. They make a raid. They steal all 3,000 camels, kill all the servants watching them. Only one gets away and runs to tell Job what he just lived through. And while he was still speaking, another also came. And said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. That is the worst news any parent could ever hear. Powerful windstorm hits and destroys the house when all ten of Job's children were inside it. All of them are crushed to death under the rubble. Only one servant makes it through to tell Job the heartbreaking news that his children are gone. Michael Card wrote this, Everything a person could imagine losing, Job lost. He was the target of practically every sort of pain and loss a human being can know. He was the successful businessman who experienced sudden and total financial ruin. He was the victim of a senseless terrorist attack. He was the parent who lost not one but all his children 
in one unthinkable catastrophe. When the day began, Job was the greatest man of all those who lived in the East. He was the wealthiest person in the region. And now he is bankrupt. He has virtually nothing left. That morning, Job and his wife were parents of ten beloved children. But before the day is over, they are utterly childless. No wonder James reminds us, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. So much can change in a single day. So let's see how Job responds to this extremely painful test. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. Job has just experienced an unimaginably crushing loss. Children are supposed to bury their parents, not parents bury their children. Losing one child is emotionally traumatic enough. Just yesterday, Caleb told me about a friend of his whose 11-year-old sister died. I just can't imagine the pain those parents and those siblings would feel. 11 years old. And here, Job and his wife lose 10 children in a single day. And so Job expresses his overwhelming grief in the customary ways of the Middle Eastern culture he belongs to. And in his deep sorrow, it says, and he fell down to the ground and worshipped. We usually think of worship in terms of what we do here on Sunday mornings. We gather together as a church family and we are led in singing songs that express heartfelt honor to God by a worship team that's made up of vocalists and musicians playing instruments. And that is a corporate expression of worship. But worship itself, the word worship originally was worth-ship. Recognizing and rejoicing in the supreme worth of God. It is a response of the heart expressed with the lips that says, God is what we value most. He matters more to us than anything or anything else. He is worthy of our highest honor and praise. Joseph Carlyle wrote this about Job's worship back in the 1600s. To worship is to give to anyone the honor that is due to him. We worship God when we give him the love, reverence, service, and honor which is due to him. We worship God when we love him, fear him, rest in him in hope and confidence. Thoughts like these may well have come from Job's heart. Lord, I will not depart from you even though all this has come upon me. I know that you are the same today as you were yesterday. True, holy, gracious, merciful, loving, kind, and ever-present. Lord, I trust you. Lord, I know you are my portion forever. Though there would be never anything more for me than what I have in you, O oh God, I would be content. Yea, I would rejoice 
You are enough. You are more than enough for me. You are my all in all, come what may. So do you hear how that calls attention to God's supreme worth? How it honors him as what is most valuable in his heart? Of course I love my children. I love you more, God. Of course I would like to have all those possessions, but I value you more than that, God. You are supreme. That's worship. And it can be expressed when you're on your face, weeping over loss, or in a corporate setting, singing with God's family, But it's got to be the heart valuing God or it's not worship. You can sing. Remember, Jesus said this, people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they worship me. So it's got to be here first. And then it can be private and or corporate. Worship is about what's happening in here toward God and how much you value him and prize him and love him And then Job feels and expresses deep sorrow. He bows before his God in worship, expressing God is more valuable to anything he's just lost. And then he makes some statements that express how he sees these tragic losses and how he sees God in all those losses. So first he says, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, And naked I shall return there. In other words, when I entered into this world as a newborn baby, I had absolutely nothing. I didn't even own any clothes on my body. And when I leave this world, I won't be taking anything with me. So everything I've ever had, all those thousands of animals or all those servants or my ten children, were only ever temporary. I didn't have anything before I was born. I won't have anything after I die. Paul uses Job's language in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Comes right out of Job 1.21. And then he says, the Lord gave. Everything I've ever had is a gift from God. It's not because I worked hard for it or I got some breaks. It all has come to me from God's gracious hand. And the Lord has not only given, he has taken away. Not the Lord gave me oxen and donkeys, but the Sabaeans took them away. Not the Lord gave me sheep, but a strange lightning took them away. Not the Lord gave me camels, but the Chaldeans took them away. Not the Lord gave me ten wonderful children, but a windstorm took them all away from me. And not even God gave me abundant possessions and children, but Satan has taken them 
away, which, remember, Job doesn't know that's part of the mix. He doesn't know about that conversation in heaven between God and Satan. We, the reader, know that. He says, the Lord gave, and the same Lord, the same Lord has taken away. God sees, or Job sees, God's sovereign hand in all of his losses. And some, some are quick to say, no, no, Job, that's not right. You're mistaken. You're wrong. Don't talk that way. For example, a Baptist pastor in Texas wrote a book called When the Hurt Won't Go Away. This is what he said. When Job's troubles came, his wife, his friends, and eventually Job, everybody involved blamed God. But that was because they did not know any better. They did not have access to all the facts. But we do know better. And one of the lessons that we will learn from Job is that much of our suffering comes not from God, but rather from Satan. It was not God who troubled Job, it was Satan. It was God who gave Job all that he had in the first place. Why in heaven's name would God take it all away from him? Ultimately, we need to see God not as the cause of our problems, but the source of our strength and hope and ability to cope with them. If I believe that God is the author of all our troubles... I would want nothing to do with him, nothing whatever. And so to clarify what we should think about what Job just said, the author, who is God-inspired, this is God-breathed scripture we're reading, the author is telling us in verse 22, this is what you should think of what Job just said. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he, my version says, blame God, ESV, charge God with wrong, literally ascribe unseemliness to God. Unseemliness would be God did something unfitting or unsuitable or inappropriate. He did not do what he was supposed to do. And the author wants us to know, when Job said the Lord took away, he was not saying something wrong. He did not ascribe unseemliness to God, but there are others who are, feel very free to do so. So Jerry Bridges writes about a mining tragedy in Wales that killed a number of students and teachers at a school And a clergyman was ready to say that God mismanaged that sad event. In response to the inevitable question about God, a clergyman being interviewed by the BBC reporter said, quote, Well, I suppose we have to admit that this is one of those occasions when the Almighty made a mistake. Don't you just want to go... That's blasphemy. This clergyman is charging God with wrong. He's saying God blew it. He should have done a better job watching that school, but hopefully he'll do better next time. 
to pay attention. That is dishonoring God. He's supposed to be a clergyman. He should know better. And so we need to decide what are we going to believe about this God we say we believe in. Does he and can he make mistakes? Or is he perfectly wise and does all things well? You need to get that settled. And the book of Job and the whole rest of the Bible is going to clearly affirm God is sovereign over all things, including all suffering and all losses and all pain that happen in this world. So if you're going to believe what the Bible says about God, you've got to go with God is all wise and does all things well and not God makes mistakes. It is impossible for God to act amiss, said Jonathan Edwards. It's impossible. God doesn't slip up sometimes. He always does what is right all the time in every situation, including loss, including suffering, including pain, whatever it is. God does all things well. Sorry. I got excited about that one. And I need to preach it to my own heart. And maybe you do too. It's easy to say it now. Feeling pretty good right now. But when the day of trouble comes, that's when I really need to say it and believe it with all my heart, right? So Job's last statement, he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan had predicted that Job would curse God to his face when his blessings were taken away from him. And all his blessings were taken away. All his possessions, all his children. Job does not say anything dishonoring to God. He doesn't say anything dishonoring about God. He does not blaspheme. He doesn't turn away from God and say, forget it. I don't want any more to do with this God. If I believe in a God who brought about trouble, I wouldn't want anything to do with him, Mr. Baptist pastor in Texas. No. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To bless means to speak well of, to speak highly of, to call attention to the greatness of. And so Job, in the midst of unspeakable losses, says God is worthy to be praised. God deserves to be greatly honored. And this is the God with whom we have to do. Brett didn't finish... 413 this morning out of Hebrews. This is the God with whom we have to do. A God who is almighty in power, infant in wisdom, who has absolute authority to do whatever he wants to do. Because he's God. And one of the things Job will need to learn in this book, and he does, and maybe we need to be reminded of, is God does not answer to us. We answer to God. We are not in a position to judge God and his dealings. Say, I approve or disapprove or any of that. He is the one who judges us and we will give an account to him. And as important as it is to know what we think about God... 
You know what's even more important? What does God think about me? Is he for me or is he against me? Because if this God of the Bible is there and he is, then there's nothing that matters more. Then what does that God think of me right now? So let's see what God says. We are not on good terms with God. Things are not right between us. So just one example. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 21, and I'll finish the sentence in 22 in a moment, but let's just look at 21 for now. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So we were alienated or estranged. There's a a barrier in our relationship. There's a, a disconnect in our relationship with God. And hostile in mind means we were not friendly toward God or even neutral about God. There is an antagonism in our hearts toward God. Look at Romans 8, 7, and 8. Romans 8, 7, and 8, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we're engaged in evil deeds. We express our contempt for God by violating his standards of right and wrong. We choose to do evil instead of good. We love darkness and hate light. So how could people like us alienated, hostile, evil, ever be in a good relationship with a holy God. We sang a couple songs this morning about the holiness of God. And yes, it means separate, set apart, different, unique. And it also means he can have nothing to do with sin and evil. So here we are, we're evil, and here's holy God. How is that ever going to come together? And the answer is verse 22. Yet, yet, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So Jesus Christ's death on the cross reconciles, brings back to harmony after there's been a conflict, brings back to good relationship after there's been a separation. He brings us back through his death. He's paying the penalty for our evil deeds and our hostility. This is how, if you're still in Colossians, go over just the next page on my Bible, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we had this record against us. Jesus figuratively nailed it to the cross. We bear it no more. It's paid in full. It's finished. And to show that it was, God raised him from the dead, showing that it had been accomplished. If God is showing you, you need to make your peace with God through Christ. First of all, acknowledge my sins are the reason there is a broken relationship. Isaiah 59.2 says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. There's a barrier there because of your sin and my sin. And so turn from sin, turn from darkness, and turn to Christ. Believing what the Bible says about him. For example, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So his death is removing those barriers between us, and he's bringing us to God. And then... Last, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, 20. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So if you've never made your peace with God, be reconciled to God. While there is still time, today is the day. Don't put it off. We, in Sunday school, talked about uh, Felix. And he's like, yeah, some other day. You don't know if you have another day. This could be your last day on this planet. So today is the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable time. Make peace with God through Christ. And for those who are trusting in Christ this morning, it's a word of encouragement for now. Uh, hopefully, well, there'll be lots of words of encouragement as we continue through the book of Job. <laughs> but for today, I, I landed on Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-five, which says, "As your days, so shall your strength be." So, if today is an average day, you will get from God as a gift an average day's amount of strength. The strength you will receive from God is sufficient for an average day's demands. And if today is a day of trouble, God will give you grace that is sufficient for whatever he has ordained for today, for you to experience. And he's promised that he will cause whatever that is to cause, to work together for your good and his glory. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word, including that you cause all things, even the hard things, the painful things, to work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so by faith, we want to believe that with all our hearts. We thank you for the promise that you will give strength for each day's needs. Thank you that the weakest among us can find strength for whatever 
today requires of us. Because we're strong in ourselves, but because you give strength. Those who wait on you will renew their strength. So, Father, thank you for all these promises about strength that you offer. Lord, we ask for grace to submit to your sovereignty over our lives, over all the things that befall us. Lord, we want to trust that you do all things well according to your perfect wisdom and a perfect plan. Lord, us to fight against doubts and unbelief and dishonoring thoughts when troubles come. Lord, would you enable us to say like Job that you give and you take away and your name is worthy to be blessed no matter what. Pray again for anyone who doesn't know you or that today they would be reconciled to you. They would make peace with you while that offer is still available. Lord, only you can do that miracle. So, Lord, we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing, Blessed Be Your Name.